Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. Writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a meaty middle about tricky conditionals and a tidbit about why we say something is in our wheelhouse. I've had several questions recently about conditionals. Some of them are from listeners asking about kinds of conditionals called the first, second, and third conditionals. Meanwhile, a listener named Lorelai has a different question. She understands English conditionals fairly well, but is uncertain about conditionals like this one. If he died fighting, why didn't they tell us about it? The dying happened in the past, but as Lorelai wrote in an email, quote, shouldn't conditional clauses that refer to past actions be in past perfect and not past simple, unquote? In other words, Lorelai wants to know why the conditional clause isn't if he had died fighting. It's not surprising that she's confused, and moreover, her question is related to the question about first, second, and third conditionals. Here's the deal. First conditional, second conditional, and third conditional aren't helpful or informative names, and in my opinion, they aren't worth teaching. Worst of all, textbooks that teach conditionals using these names usually forget all about the exact kind of conditional Lorelei has stumbled into. Today, we're going to lay out not three, but four basic kinds of conditionals and call them by names that are more informative and easier to remember than arbitrary numerical terms. You probably expect that if I'm talking about conditionals, I'm going to talk about the subjunctive mood. I've talked about the subjunctive and conditionals before, but today we're going to look at conditionals in a different way, which you may find easier. Let's take the sentence, if Squiggly knows the answer, he isn't saying. This conditional is talking about the present time, whether something is true right now. Does Squiggly know the answer? We call it an open conditional because Squiggly may or may not know the answer. Either possibility is open. So, if Squiggly knows the answer, is a present time open conditional. The present tense can also be used in future time open conditionals. Adapting Lorelai's example, we could ask, if he dies in battle, will they tell us about it? It's talking about something that may or may not happen in the future, this person's death in battle. Present or future time open conditionals are sometimes called first conditionals. Now, let's talk about the past tense. 
Of course, you know that the past tense is used to describe events that happened at a past time. But that's not its only function. It's also used to express something called modal remoteness. That is, something a speaker considers unlikely or impossible. Take the sentence, If Squiggly knew the answer, he would tell us. This is another present-time conditional, because we're still talking about whether something is true right now. Does Squiggly know the answer? But in this conditional, it's clear that the speaker believes Squiggly doesn't know the answer. The past tense form, knew, if Squiggly knew the answer, isn't showing past time. It's showing modal remoteness. For that reason, we call this a present-time remote conditional. Present-time remote conditionals are also called second conditionals, although again, I don't recommend using that name. So far, we've talked about present-time conditionals, both open and remote. Now let's talk about some past-time conditionals. We'll continue to use our example about Squiggly knowing the answer. This time, it's if Squiggly knew the answer, he wasn't saying. In this conditional, the past tense isn't expressing modal remoteness. It's doing its regular job of referring to a past time. In this sentence, if Squiggly knew the answer, is talking about whether something was true in the past. Did Squiggly know the answer? It's an open conditional because either possibility is open. Maybe Squiggly didn't know the answer, or maybe he did and just didn't want to say. Past-time open conditionals don't have a numeric name. Grammars that use the terms first, second, and third conditional usually overlook them. As a result, English speakers like Lorelei are confused when they find themselves writing past-time open conditionals, such as, if he died fighting, why didn't they tell us about it? This sentence is grammatical, and it means that the speaker is leaving open both possibilities— that the person died fighting or didn't die fighting. The trouble is that some English grammars completely bypass this kind of conditional in their hurry to get to the other kind of pastime conditional, which we'll get to very soon. To recap, the past tense can express past time, as it does in conditionals like if Squiggly knew the answer he wasn't saying. It can also express modal remoteness for present time. As in, if Squiggly knew the answer, he would tell us. However, it can't do both jobs at once, at least not in standard English. So what do we do when we need to express modal remoteness for a past time? In other words, how do we make past time remote conditionals? This is a job for the past perfect tense. It can show both past time and modal remoteness simultaneously. Here's how our sentence about Squiggly knowing the answer would be phrased if it were a past-time remote conditional. If Squiggly had known the answer, he would have told us. Again, we're talking about whether something was true in the past. Did Squiggly know the answer? This time, the past perfect tense, had known, shows us that the speaker believes Squiggly didn't know the answer. The past perfect form, would have told, he would have told us, indicates that the telling did not actually happen. These pastime remote conditionals are what some grammars refer to as third conditionals, and they're what Lorelei was thinking about. She could write a sentence like, if he had died fighting, why wouldn't they have told us about it? 
but it would mean that the speaker doesn't believe the person in question did die fighting. Now, I said that the simple past tense can't express both past time and modal remoteness simultaneously, at least not in standard English. However, the use of simple past tense in past-time remote conditionals has been creeping into American English, and to some extent into British English. Instead of saying, if Squiggly had known the answer, he would have told us, many speakers might say, if Squiggly knew the answer, he would have told us. I personally noticed that in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, past-time remote conditionals are always formed this way. Although such sentences are usually understandable in context, they can be distracting for speakers who are used to the past perfect tense in these kind of conditionals. My recommendation is to use the simple past in your present time remote conditionals and your past time open conditionals and stick with the standard past perfect tense for your past time remote conditionals. Lastly, I will say one thing about the subjunctive— You can navigate open and remote conditionals without needing to think in terms of the subjunctive for every verb in the English language except one. For one verb and only one verb, the form to express modal remoteness is not always the same as its past tense form. That's the verb was. To express modal remoteness, you need the subjunctive form were, as in I wouldn't do that if I were you. But was is still fine in pastime open conditionals, as in, if I was out of line yesterday, I truly apologize. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent PhD linguist who blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com. You can also find him on Twitter as literalminded. Have you ever wondered about the term wheelhouse? Our listener named Heidi did. She asked, quote, Have you guys noticed the term wheelhouse being tossed around a lot lately? It seems to be the business meeting pop culture buzzword du jour. I'm wondering if you've noticed the same, and if so, if you have any theories on why that is, unquote. Heidi, this term is definitely in frequent use. I can't tell you why it's so popular, but I can tell you where it came from. A wheelhouse is exactly what it sounds like, the little house on a ship where the captain stands and where the ship's wheel and other navigational equipment are located. That's where the skipper stood on the SS Minnow and where Captain Merrill Steubing stood on the Pacific Princess, also known as the Love Boat. Although people have been steering ships for centuries, the term wheelhouse appeared for the first time in the early 1800s. In 1840, a traveler on a ship that burned and sank in Long Island Sound wrote a letter of complaint to Daniel Webster, then U.S. Secretary of State. The ship's captain seemed confused, the traveler wrote. Quote, he went into the wheelhouse, and that was the last I saw of him. I rather think he stayed there until he suffocated, unquote. In actuality, he didn't suffocate. He escaped on a lifeboat along with three other people. All 136 other people on board died in the cold January waters. For some reason, in the 1950s, this term was picked up by baseball announcers and reporters. They began to refer to a batter's wheelhouse, by that meaning the area of the strike zone where a batter swings with the most power. Reporters also called this area the crush zone and the kill zone, by the way. 
Those phrases seem pretty obvious, but we don't know how the wheelhouse analogy got started. But if you imagine a sea captain standing in front of the ship's wheel, you can see how the wheel forms a sort of target in front of the midsection. Maybe that image inspired reporters. Another theory described in the Dixon Baseball Dictionary is that batters wheel at the ball, taking good-level roundhouse swings. Perhaps this wheeling suggested the association. Either way, in the 1980s, the meaning of this term extended once again. It came to mean, and still means, an area or field in which a person excels. You could say that grammar is my wheelhouse, for example, or that teaching people to write is in my wheelhouse. Notice that you can use this phrase in one of two ways. You can say something is your wheelhouse, or that something is in your wheelhouse. Either version is correct, but in your wheelhouse may be a little more common. In answer to Heidi's question about whether this is the business buzzword du jour, I'm not sure, but let's all make a mutual pact to not say it too often. It's a fun, vivid image, and I'd hate for it to undergo semantic bleaching, like we talked about last time. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Finally, I have a familect story. Hi, my name is James, and I have a familect story. Uh, my wife and I spent the first year or so of our marriage living in Austin, Massachusetts, next to a whole bunch of college students. And uh, the funny thing about that place is that most apartment contracts uh, end on August 31st and begin on September 1st, leaving everyone homeless for one night um, as everyone switches places. And what we found is that uh, a lot of people don't want to take their furniture with them, so they leave it right on the street. And in fact, they call this Alston Christmas. And so when we were factoring how to move things into our decision-making process, we coined the term Christmas as a verb to describe leaving something out for someone else to have. And so, oh, do we want this table? No, let's Christmas it. And we would put it outside. Um, And so that's how we coined the term Christmas as a verb, meaning to leave it outside for someone else to have. Uh, Thank you. Enjoy the podcast. And I hope you have a great day. Bye. Thanks, James. If you want to hear your family story on the show, the story of a word your family and only your family uses, leave a voicemail message like James did at 833214-GIRL. I'm Mignon Fogarty, Grammar Girl and author of the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. You can find me at the home of my podcast network, quickanddirtytips.com where you can also find all the other great Quick and Dirty Tips hosts like Everyday Einstein and the Get Fit Guy. And thanks to my audio producer, Nathan Sims. That's all. Thanks for listening. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.